This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Veterans Affairs Department hired tens of thousands of employees during just this fiscal year, but it still struggles with staff shortages and high turnover. Now VA is looking to Congress for legislative fixes, such as higher pay caps for medical care staff. It's also asking lawmakers to make permanent some of its COVID-era hiring flexibilities. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And let's begin with that number. How many people have they hired this year, Jory? It's hard to believe how many employees they've hired this year, but the answer is 59 thousand employees since the start of this fiscal year. And if you think that's high, there are more in the pipeline here. We heard from Jessica Bongiorni, the chief of human capital management at the Veterans Health Administration. She says that an additional 31,000 candidates are in the hiring pipeline right now. And for some context here, Tom, we're talking about an agency that has a workforce of about 400,000 employees and about 90 percent of those employees work in healthcare. But aren't many of the healthcare workers under Title 38, where they already have higher pay caps than employees under Title V? Well, there has been some progress in that sector. The Congress recently passed the RAISE Act to set higher pay caps for some nurses and physicians assistants, but that's just the beginning here. Secretary McDonough has called on Congress to set higher pay for really everyone across the spectrum, physicians, the hospital CEOs for the VA medical centers, really everyone is in sorely need of higher pay caps, according to VA officials. And so you said they hired 59,000. They've got another 31,000 out of 400,000 there already. That's a hard number to inculcate in the brain. Why do they have a shortage if they're hiring at that rate? Almost 80,000 people and 90,000 people in a given fiscal. Yeah, just given that huge surge in hiring, the VA is still struggling with a really high rate of turnover, particularly with nurses. Bonjourney, who we talked about just a moment ago, said that there's been a shortage of personnel that was an issue before the pandemic, but it's gotten even worse since the pandemic. She said on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the worst, the VA is currently at a seven. And prior to the pandemic, they were probably at a four or a five. So then the implication is they hire lots of people, but then lots of people leave fast. The turnover, yeah. I mean, the VA has always been a great starting point for a lot of healthcare workers who then go on elsewhere in their careers in the private sector. But in this case, the VA is really suffering from just getting people to stay. Yeah, it sounds like trying to fill a swimming pool from the top with a hose while the plug is open at the bottom. You never really get to the rim that you want to be at. And how does private sector pay compare to VA pay in the medical field? They are certainly coming from behind on that regard. The RAISE Act was one effort for the VA to stay a little more competitive, again, for the nurses and the physician's assistants at least, but there are more legislative fixes the VA is asking for here in terms of higher pay caps. And really what's interesting here is that the VA is suffering from both ends here. They are suffering from the high end and the low end of things. So entry-level people who are you know, housekeeping aides, health technicians, food service workers, the hourly workers, those are people that the private sector can offer higher hourly wages for. And on the other end of things, the physicians and the the highly trained medical employees, they also are suffering from an ability to keep them around. Yeah, I wonder if anyone's done, maybe you know this or not, a comprehensive study of medical pay in the VA versus the private sector? Because I think the private sector is all over the place. If you are a celebrated plastic surgeon in Hollywood, that's one thing. 
If you are a general practitioner in rural Alabama, that's a whole other thing. Same thing with nurses and all the way down the line. So I wonder if it's possible to even have an average that means anything. Have they, have they done that study? Do you know? Not my knowledge, but I think one thing that we have to recognize is that healthcare workers, the demand for them generally across the board got way more competitive since the start of COVID. And so there's been some pressure for private sector employers to offer higher pay. And in this case, the VA is trying to keep up, but has some hurdles to do so. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And on the hiring side, does it still take them forever to hire people? Unfortunately, it is still an issue for the VA to get people in the door uh, as quickly as possible here. Despite all these people that they're hiring, it takes about 95 days on average for the VA to bring people on board. And there's going to be some variation there. We heard from Ralph Gigliotti, the network director for the Veterans Integrated Service Network in the Rocky Mountain area. And he says that over there, it takes about 88 days on average to bring people on board. But here he's describing some of the challenges unique to his area. We're very dependent on that nurse wanting to come work for VA because of the mission. We've done everything we can and we continue to do to make sure the pay is equitable and the work environment is equitable. But that speed of hire is an issue for us. All right. And that was to the Senate VA committee, that statement. What is the VA asking for from Congress, Jory? So the VA got, as part of the many COVID spending bills that Congress sent out, some temporary authority to waive some of the hurdles in the hiring process, things like background checks uh, that can happen later in the hiring process compared to pre-pandemic. The VA wants Congress to make these hiring flexibilities permanent, and there's been some anxiety about that from the House VA committee. The leadership there had some reservations about that proposal, but we heard from the VA Senate Committee Chairman John Tester. He says that he's more on board with that idea, and he's really listening to VA in terms of what they need from Congress to fix this. We really do need to sit down and figure out what is the benefit and what is the cost to have all these regulations around hiring. Look, I don't want an in-app person in the VA. You guys don't want an in-app person in the VA. You want to make sure. But these are healthcare folks that you guys have thousands of. You've already hired thousands of them. It ought not be that tough. I'll tell you what I need from you. I need a list of things that we could do to make the hiring thing work. And is that list going to be forthcoming that Senator Tester asked for? I think the expectation is, yes, the VA is eager to have these things uh, move forward. And at least from Tester's perspective, there are some willing ears to uh, hear those complaints out. Imagine being a patient there. You know, you have Nurse A one day and the next thing you know, Nurse B has replaced that Nurse A. And you might have a, a successive parade of healthcare practitioners in a given stay. And what about the electronic health record? Because that has had usability issues. And that's enough to make staff frustrated too, isn't it? Yeah, that is another point of frustration here. We've seen from the VA Inspector General several reports recently about concerns about how that's going in terms of the overall rollout of this EHR, this electronic health record. They're supposed to be fully on board with the EHR by 2028. Right now we're looking at three facilities. There's going to be more on the way this year. At least that's the plan. But we saw a joint report from the VAIG and the DODIG. They said that the office that is supposed to 
keep VA and DOD on track with this integrated healthcare record. The Federal Electronic Health Record Modernization Program Office, bit of a mouthful, but the IGs found that they are not really coordinating those two agencies in terms of that integration, which is the whole point of this in the first place. And so the problems just kind of start from there, but have downstream consequences in terms of the success of this rollout. Well, I bet they can hardly wait till fiscal 2023 to see what that brings. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? 
I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience? And to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my 
my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. It's a well-known fact that good sleep leads to a happier life. Okay, maybe that's not a fact fact, but... Don't you just feel amazing after a great night's sleep? Like the first night back in your own bed after traveling. It's time to demand more first night back kind of sleep. Stop tossing and turning and talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.